Hey, everybody. Alan Arnett here on another episode podcast on alanarnett.com. And I am very, very pleased to have a world traveler here, aka mountain guide, uh, rock climber extraordinaire. I'm not sure what else to call you, John Gupta, but hey, man, welcome. Good to see you. <laughs> Thanks very much. Pleasure to be along. Well, so uh, where are you? You're in Kathmandu now? I'm currently in the in the famous Radisson Hotel in uh, Kathmandu, yeah. Ah, yeah, right next to the Hotel Tibet, yeah. Yes, exactly, yeah. Know it, know it well, know it well. And you have been gone, you just told me you've been gone from your home in Snowdenia, at, right there two miles from uh, Snowden in the UK for since March of this year? Yeah, that's right. Yes, in um, mid-March, just before the sort of travel ban came into place in the UK, uh, we we managed to sort of sneak out, as it were. And um, yeah, I've been out. We we had a great season in the spring. And then uh, I did actually end up popping home, but just for like the briefest of like five days uh, before a Pakistan season in the summer. And then again, um, managed to sneak about, about a week, actually, about seven days at home before coming out for the autumn season here in Nepal again. So give or take, I've pretty much um, been out on some big mountains since earlier in the year. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure your friends and family appreciated you just actually checking in so they make sure that you had all your fingers and toes, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. You know, to even, even those five days um, sort of at home where I get to just check in with some friends, uh and, and family and eat some good food they, they really kind of reset the clock and yeah, yeah. Uh, a, ch a chance to do a little bit of washing unpack repack uh and actually you know um just allow a little break between the two trips even if it's small to sort of close one even sort of emotionally and mentally close one trip and then get ready for the next one so yeah it's been been an amazing year this year a little, uh, little travel sorbet to cleanse the palate before you go to Absolutely. the Absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what um, we wanted to chat about today for readers and um, listeners and viewers is that you've been doing a pretty interesting project uh, with a fellow, a fellow Brit, uh, Rebecca Ferry, uh, over the yeah. last uh, eight months or so. So we want, to, we want to talk about that, climbing a lot of 8,000 meter peaks, your first experience on K. Two, I think it was your third mm -hmm. summit of Everest. Was that right? Your third summit or fourth? Uh, fourth. Fourth summit yeah. of Everest. Um, and um, and now you're about to head over to Amadablam. But um, before we get into all of that, let's talk about you a little bit. And uh, so I found it very interesting that uh, you must have made somebody mad because you went and spent uh, two years at age 18 in Belize. So that you got exiled to Belize, <laughs> and that really began your um, your adventure career of being in the jungles. But it led you to fall in love with climbing in the mountains, and specifically the big mountains. So t t tell us a little bit about what took you to Belize. In all seriousness, yeah, that's, uh, it's a really good point. I, I mean, you've clearly done a bit of research. So um, between school and university, I, I just really wanted to take a bit of time uh, I kind of inspired by my two older brothers who also took a, a gap year um, so I worked full-time for six months uh, in a in a big store in the UK called John Lewis uh, which was great and then I went away for six months to Belize uh, and I joined a, a sort of gap year expedition company called Trek Force who sadly still, well, they still exist, but not quite in the same entity anymore. Um, and enrolled in this epic um, expedition. Uh, I kind of want for a better word, it, it was really quite out there and quite hardcore. Uh, and I just threw myself into it and loved all of it. Um, totally fell in love with the whole expedition concept, the, you know, the leadership concept. Um, and I, I just remember this this one day I was just me and the expedition leader, a guy called Chris uh, Rhodes. We were collecting some uh, firewood because uh, everything we ate for two months was um, cooked on fires. And uh, I just kind of was chit chatting with him and suddenly the penny dropped. Um, I mean, I was 18 at the time and uh, the penny dropped that he was getting paid to be there. And I'm, 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 <laughs> My brain exploded. I was just like, oh, my, oh, my God. Um, so I, I just had a good chat with him, really. And he kind of explained that in, within the UK, there's a, a qualification system. 
And uh, once you have the sort of gateway qualification, the mountain leader, the ML, then the opportunities are kind of up to you, whether you work with kids or adults or expeditions. And um, so as soon as I got home, I enrolled within the, in the ML and um, on the ML course, I met a great bunch of guys and together we went and climbed Elbrus and um, kind of just organized it ourselves, guided ourselves, made loads of mistakes, but ultimately, <laughs> ultimately we summited and we all got down safely and that kind of started this um, relentless journey that I've had for the last sort of 14 years of enjoying and pursuing and guiding uh, at high altitude. You know, I, lo- I love it. I love it that you say that, um, that Chris said, all of a sudden for you, you went, oh my gosh, I can actually do this for a living and, and be paid and, you know, mm-hmm. make a living out of it. Now, I think most people think that, you know, mountain guides have this rich, glorious life of luxury and and it's not quite as romantic as it comes across, but there are uh, so many people though that are envious or have the same ambition that they want to become a professional mountain guide. So getting your mountain leader training was really the key to allowing you then to open up your own company. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, like many career paths and uh, journeys that people take, you know, you go through one door uh, and you don't really know what's behind it. And then once you have a bit more experience, and a bit more time doing that job role, then you, a whole new uh, set of doors you know, appear and you have jungles and deserts and mountains and trekking and, and you know, Duke of Edinburgh or whatever it is you might have an interest in. Um, but it was just that that trip with the guys that I met on my ML where we climbed Elbrus and I kind of you know, just stood up there and I felt great. You know, and there were other people around me I noticed who you know, weren't feeling so great. And I was like, well, you know, maybe I'll do some more. And, you know, within the space of a year, myself and one other chap from that group, we went and did Aconcagua and Denali. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm, I'm quite good at this. You know, I, I seem to, I seem to acclimatize well. Yeah, yeah. I feel, I feel strong and um, I just kept going. Yeah. I, I just really enjoyed it. And then, you know, once you have enough experience, you can then come full circle and then consider the concept of taking people to altitude as the leader or the guide and um, facilitating, you know, their expedition and, and their experience to the mountain, wherever that might be. So you made an interesting um, business model decision, though, pretty early on when you founded your guiding company, um, Mountain Expeditions. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Mountainexpeditions.uk. Is that the website? Yes, it's uh, mountain-expeditions.co.uk. Okay, yeah. we'll, def- we'll definitely put this across the banner here. <laughs> give, give you a so plug. Um, but you made an interesting business decision not to run a large-scale commercial company like a Jagged Globe, for example, or a Himalayan Experience, Russell Bryce, you know, back in his day. But instead, what I would call more of a boutique uh, outfit where you ran very small groups, if not preferring one-on-one, Tell us what's, what was your thinking behind that and why you do, why do you continue to do that today? Um, you're, you're absolutely right. I think what, what I've tried to do is find a bit of middle ground. So, um, you know, mountain expeditions, we run trips to Kilimanjaro, for example, or Tubkal or Aconcagua. But we still, uh, well, I still, I say we, it's only me. Um, I still believe that it, it really is about making that expedition the greatest thing that that person's either ever done or at least done that year, for example, um, and not just being a number. Um, you know, Jagged Globe are a very respectable British company and I, and, I, and I like them a lot, but maybe they would have, say, 12 or maybe 14 clients um, on an Aconcagua trip. Right. For me, that just felt too big. Um, so, you know, I, I now have a, um, a policy, you know, we just cap the numbers what I believe is is a sort of reasonable. So for Aconcagua, for example, it would be eight as, as a total maximum. And I think that's a really nice number. So there's enough members in the team that um, it feels uh, real and there's lots of nice, uh, lots of people to get to know, but you don't get lost. You know, you're not lost in, right. a, in a huge team and numbers. But I guess the one-to-one thing has come uh, kind of twofold. 
partly because in the UK, when I'm uh, guiding rock climbing or instructing and coaching uh, climbing and mountaineering, that's always done on a much smaller scale. So either one to one or one to two. Um, and that's kind of the way that that type of work works. Um, and thanks to COVID, um, it's become incredibly difficult to facilitate moving teams of people around the world. Um, and as it happened, Bex came along and um, we, we had a few ideas. And actually, the year has evolved as we've gone along. But the opportunity to work one to one during this tricky time that we're still in um, has proved really, really good um, and actually very manageable. Um, and we've been able to sort of uh, adhere to the rules and regulations quite easily, just being her, her, her and myself. So um, that's kind of pushed me into this one-to-one Himalayan style guiding. Um, right. And it's interesting, um, in, in 2013, when I had the, the first opportunity to go to Everest, uh, I was sharing a base camp with Kenton Cool, and I remember chatting to him at the time and uh, you know kind of probing him why he goes one-to-one and I remember thinking that he, he had some very valid reasons and good rationale for uh, why he goes one-to-one and then also I was part of the Tim Mosdale's uh, slightly bigger team of six um, and I also you know I asked him about you know his concept and I think I just try and find what feels comfortable for me on that particular mountain so there are mountains where I think one-to-one is a really good thing uh, and it can work really well um, uh, for me. And I think there's other mountains, you know, like the Aconcaguas or the Mirror Peaks right, and things right. like that, where actually having, having a small team can be a lot of fun. Yeah, really good. So, uh, I mean, we could we could talk for the next week about what you've done this year, but let's, let's start it off with um, with your your one on one client, uh, Bex, um, Rebecca Ferry. Um, and I guess you two summited Ama de Blom uh, last year in the autumn of 2020, correct? That's right. Yeah. First of December is so- a beautiful day. Is that congratulations? Uh, is so? Is that when um, uh, the seed began to be hatched for trying multiple eight thousand meter mountains? I mean, tell us about tell us about Bex and uh, you know how the seed got planted. Because in, in the big picture is that she had a vision or a dream to go climb multiple eight thousand meter mountains, and and somehow or another that got compressed into doing it in a, a relatively short time. That's you know clearly that's been done before climbing multiple eight thousand meter mountains in a short time but not very much by, um, by females. So tell us how this, this seed got planted and how it got started. Sure. Well, we, we climbed AMA together last November, December, as you said, and it was such a fabulous experience. We were, because of the COVID situation, we were definitely a little tentative about coming, um, but there was nothing actually stopping us from coming. So we did come and uh, we were really well received. Um, across across the board uh, we had a lovely lovely expedition it was great myself and her, uh, and bex and lakpa were the only three people on the entire mountain oh my uh, God. When, when we summited so it's just magic it was really special and then uh, we made our way back to Kathmandu, and i've kind of made a habit of not um asking that plum question to clients What's next exactly you know when we get back to when we get back to Moshi or Mendoza or Kathmandu or wherever it is we are we just enjoy that expedition and yeah maybe they ask each other but I always try and not um kind of push that you know that that question what's next you know I just want to enjoy the moment but so we went to dinner one night before we flew home and uh, I kind of joked about it and I said, I'm not going to ask you what's next because I think um you know we've had such a good trip go home enjoy reflect on it and then as and when you're ready to talk about more mountains then give me a call and she just she actually said um what about k2 i was like well um (laughs) (laughs) you know i don't know what she thought to my response but my response was incredibly uh reserved and i said to her well uh i'm certainly open to discussing the idea um However, I need you to do some due diligence first. So what I did is I composed an email to her with uh, two books that I wanted her to read 
a, a, a list of YouTube videos I wanted her to watch, including like Adrian Ballinger's uh, video and a couple of others, and then a couple of links to some blogs. And I said, once you've read all of these, oh, and a link to uh, my, my friend uh, Rob, who I wanted her to talk to. And I said, once you've done all of this, if you're still keen to go, then we'll talk about it. So she, she did all of that and came back and said, yep, I understand. I've, I've analysed it. I've had a look and I'm keen to go. So we put that in the diary. <laughs> and then uh, I also said to her, OK, fine, if, if we're going to put this in the diary, then uh, you need a little bit more experience between what we've done and where we're going. So we booked in uh, two full weeks of sort of instructing and guiding in Scotland in the winter, uh, two full weeks in the Alps uh, with a guide in the Alps doing more training and then two more weeks in North Wales. So six weeks of training, which I thought, given uh, what I knew of her, would be like, you know, appropriate for her. And then she messaged me like about, oh, I don't know, maybe a month um, later and said, uh, why don't we go and do Everest in the spring? <laughs> I, like, well, I, I don't know. I don't know I, if this is a dream client or, or what. So I, don't, I don't know. I didn't think she was interested in, in Everest. I thought she told me that she wasn't. And she said, well, you know, like she had a friend going, the, the client of Kenton's. Um, she said, oh, it could be fun. Da, da, da. So we fleshed it out. And um, as you well know, we, we ended up going to Everest and Bex is a, uh, an incredibly driven and uh, physically fit individual. So she was like, let's do Lotsi as well. I said, yeah, no problem. I, I've, done, I've done that before in 2018 with Steve on the Seven Summits project. Uh, so I knew what that involved. And I, I thought that she would be perfectly capable of doing that. Um, so, yeah, that's how the spring evolved and, and, the, and the summer and I think it was just while we were um, in this. Oh, we also tried Makalu in the spring, as, as you may know, but we had to unfortunately turn back from 7,500. So that's unfinished business. Um, and then that during was, that time. That was due, that was due to uh, ropes and snow, right? Yeah, mostly ropes and logistics. There'd been a, a tricky season without any real direction on Makalu. There was a number of small groups and teams uh, but very little constructive direction, no fixing team or anything like that. And unfortunately, um, it had been yeah, a bit tricky for fixing, uh, should I say. Um, but that's OK. We still had a really good experience on Macaulay. In fact, if you, if you spoke to Bex and asked her to pinpoint a few of her highlights, uh, Macaulay comes up pretty high at the top. So nice. interesting, yeah. And then yeah, during that time, she mentioned about potentially doing something in the autumn and that that idea just evolved a little bit through the year as we discussed what she liked and what she didn't like about these expeditions and, and that sort of thing so let's let's pause here and get, just give give us the tick list of all of the peaks that you've done this year not you know summit or not so everest okay so it was everest lots and makalu and then we went to k2 yeah. Uh, we were hoping to try Broad Peak, but by the time we'd wrapped up right. on K2, Broad Peak had kind of uh, closed up for the season. Yeah. Yeah. And then we we just did uh, Manaslu and Dalagiri. Okay, so that's six. So you got five out of six that you actually wrote. Four, four out of six. Four out of six, okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, so uh, there were seven that we hoped, no. but we, we, climbed up, we climbed on six and summited four. Okay. Okay. So let's, uh, let's boy, I don't know if we can do this as a lightning round or not, but cause like I said, we can talk about each one of these forever. Um, so on Everest, uh, you were right in the, in the, uh, the eye of the needle, eye of the storm with, uh, literally and figuratively both with two typhoons coming in and, and, you know, the COVID situation and all of that. Um, so tell us a little bit about what, how Everest laid out and how it rolled out for you during the season. So what you didn't see behind the scenes, everybody, was that uh, that we lost the connection there in Kathmandu due to, to due to a blackout, uh, <laughs> rolling blackouts. Which anybody's ever been to Kathmandu or Nepal is familiar with those. But uh, anyway, so John, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, Everest and how that went. Um, it went super smooth for us, actually. 
Um, although obviously it was a complex year. Um, as far as I believe there's a record number of permits, um, although not a record number of summits. Um, but we, we took a love, but as I said, mentioned at the beginning, we actually left a really lovely leisure, a 16 day trek to base camp. I think it was via the Ranger La and Kongma La. Um, so it was, it was a really lovely, uh, trek in and we arrived feeling, um, really healthy and um, well acclimatized. Uh, what, what we did this year is actually we, we did a one rotation. Um, so we went up on the hill for six nights. Uh, we did two nights at one and four nights at two with a tag up towards uh, three as well. And um, one thing Bex does do is acclimatize very well. Um, you know, she'll be the first to say she's not the fastest or you know the most technical or you know whatever but she she does acclimatize very very well so we we were happy that that was sufficient and then after that we went down to base camp and uh rested for a few days and i was keeping tabs with tashi in uh, seven summits because they were fixing and uh, there was a good window coming on sort of uh, 10, oh, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Um, so we moved up to, to camp two uh, and the fixing team pushed back a day, but that's OK. So we, we just rested at camp two, kept in touch with Tashi. And then the very first window that came in, the 11th and 12th, which retrospectively turned out to be the best two days of the season. Um, Tashi went up with his Bahrainian team and a couple of others, uh, myself and Kenton and Tim Mosdale, we went up um, uh, and had a, a fabulous, fabulous summit day. It wasn't too busy. There was maybe, I don't know, 40 people in total, maybe 45. Um, it was absolutely fantastic weather. Um, on the 11th and then Bex and I went round and oh, and Kenton and Tim uh, went round and we all summited Lotsi the next day as well um, and then down to camp two so a, a really textbook and smooth sort of 48 hours um, up high on the mountain it was great. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about COVID uh, I, I know that um, that you were using um, uh, Garrett Madison for logistics and uh, and Iswari from Himalayan um, expeditions, right? Himalayan yeah. guides, Himalayan yeah. guides out, out of Kathmandu. But uh, yeah, to, to touch on COVID just a smidge. Sure. I mean, um, anybody that says it wasn't there, like the uh, Ministry of Tourism, is clearly uh, blatantly lying. Um, it was a really interesting season and very challenging some for some teams. Um, you know, I, I think Garrett's team were very respectful of trying to minimise um, interaction with other people. So that was great. But what actually happened myself and Bex and Kenton and his client Ardavan is that because we arrived separately, we're in like base camp quarantine in a separate dining tent to the main group. And then actually, um, we ended up kind of just staying um, with that dining tent. So the four of us um, kind of had our own little kind of separate dining tent. And we, we'd see others, of course, and chat to them, but mostly just outside. So for ourselves, yeah. it, we were quite relaxed about it. Um, but it was certainly around camp. You know, you'd hear hearsay and stories. And, you know, I, I know that um, Mike Hamill, who I'm good friends with, they had a tough time in their camp. Um, you know, they tr they had good systems in place, but still, you know, it's a difficult uh, virus to, to control. You know, with the climbers, the members, the Sherpas, the porters coming in and out, trekkers. So it was always going to be very challenging. And I think um, on the whole, I would say that everybody I met was was certainly trying to do their part to, um, you know, keep it down and, and, you know, keep a low profile. But inevitably, for most of this spring's um, sort of summits, but um, yeah, it was a tricky one. Yep. I, I don't really know what more, more to add to that, but um, uh, that's, a, that's a good, that's a good summary. I think a lot of people, yeah. you know, did their very best and some were able to dodge it and some were not, and some, you know, made early decisions to, to bail and others just pushed through. Um, but uh, I, I do wish that there had been more transparency uh, from almost everybody involved about 
you know, what the realities were. So given all of that, so you, you, so you guys, you and Bex knocked off the world's highest and then the fourth highest with load C got that double. Um, and so then K2 was on the next horizon and I, I got to tell readers and I, I'll put up the link to, uh, to uh, some of your social media, but uh, John was very eloquent in talking about Pakistan and the Trek and the Baltero and getting up and being okay to for the first time. Cause you'd never been there before. And uh, again, you used um, uh, Madison Mountaineering's logistics, and and um, you know it was a it was a pretty interesting uh, season. And I guess COVID was not an issue uh, for uh, Pakistan and uh, this summer, or at least the climbing in the northern territories. Certainly, they had they had COVID, but not in the mountains up there. Yeah, like, like you said, it, it was my first time to Pakistan, and to say I was excited is a, is a gross <laughs> understatement stories and watch blogs and you know what followed friends uh climbing in pakistan and just always wanted to go and to, to go for your first time and uh your k2 to be the objective is just uh, a, a total dream for me so and of course with um a client that i now knew incredibly well um was was the perfect perfect trip for me so yeah it was it was, it was touch and go you know the expedition was um not completely confirmed until you know a week or two before yeah, yeah. um because of the 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 restrictions in pakistan and um getting the sherpas across but once we were there um it it just again you know credit to garrett and um the the incredible sherpas from himalayan guides and from pioneer they were the two core teams on the mountain this year uh, of course mirza was there and a couple of other smaller groups but Ultimately, the mountain was fixed and uh, controlled kind of uh, by Pioneer and um, and Garrett's team. And uh, we have to thank the mountain and the weather. They, they granted us reasonable weather to fix uh, the lower half of the mountain and for us to enjoy our uh, acclimatization rotation. And then we did endure like maybe 10 days or 12 days. I can't remember at base camp, which, you know, is a reasonably long time to twiddle your thumbs and and play backgammon but you know we we got through it and and then this the world's greatest weather window um appeared and none of us could quite believe it we were like oh my goodness there's a there's a five six day stellar weather window so you know we got together we chit-chatted the sherpas worked together it was a real sort of collaborative effort and uh the pioneers they all went on the 27th we all went on the 28th and I think it was, you know, 46 out of 46 who wanted to go, go. And um, everybody was safe and up and down. And it was, it was um, you know, Garrett's been there six times, has three summits. Right. Uh, of his co-guides, Conan was there. He's been there three times and this was his first summit. Um, so, you know, it's not an Everest. It's not like there are summits every year. Um, right. it's a completely different ball game and, you know, we played, we played the game and we, we did our best and we, we were graced with a wonderful, wonderful summit chance. So, you know, I, I share your, um, your gratitude that, uh, to the mountain, um, and, and, and to, uh, Garrett and the Sherpas and the high altitude porters, the entire Pakistan environment, but, you know, having that weather window and being able to summit on your first attempt, um, on K2 is such a rarity and such a gift. But yeah. to, to your point that Everest and K2 are really in, a, in, in different leagues, both both deserve an eminent respect, you know, for anyone who gets on uh, on their flanks. But um, tell us a little bit about what stood out to you about climbing on K2, because you're a rock climber. So, you know, when you were going through the Black Pyramid or you're going through House Chimney, I mean, that, that's not unforeign, unknown terrain to you. You, you know how to rock climb. But still, did it, did it did it strike you differently climbing at you know seven sixty seven hundred <clears throat> meters seventy five hundred meters? Yeah, absolutely. There, there were a few key points where I kind of thought to myself, "This is pretty real." <laughs> um, and yeah, in the in the Black Pyramid, where it's like unrelentingly rocky and technical, and um, you have to be very delicate on K two because there's a, a huge amount of loose rock. Um, and and people above you and below you. So right. 
for me, this was what I was most conscious about was the, the concept of knocking rocks down onto other people. Yeah, the two main points were in-house to me, which there there is nothing on any of the other 8,000s that I've climbed this year, uh, anything like that. You know, that's substantially steeper and more arduous um, than anything else on, on Everest or all the other mountains. Yeah, I've done the north side of Everest, as, as you know, with Molly Hughes in, in 2017 and um, obviously enjoyed the, the three steps, the second step in particular, which is quite big and quite well known. And that's quite hard work uh, at 8,000, whatever, 500 or whatever it comes in at. Right. But House of Chimney is pretty, pretty full on. It, like in the UK, it would be like um, a, a Scottish grade four type chimney, which is a, a reasonable sort of middle grade uh, technical. So, and then, of course, on summit day, you, you go up to the Serac, you, you traverse underneath it. And then for us, as we came out and around off that, that face, there were some pretty steep, sort of almost pure sections that probably went up to about 70 degrees. So I was on my front points. I'm still on my Juma and the fixed lines, of course, but on my front points at 8,300 metres on K2 on 70 degree ice, thinking <laughs> yeah well a this this is awesome and, <laughs> and b and b this this is out there i mean this is pretty wild yeah yeah i i, I just i, I love it because you know it, it, at certain moments on k2 you just kind of have to pause and go am i is this real or am i dreaming this i mean yeah it's amazing and of course the I mean, view- go ahead honestly alan like um day were like we had on k2 you know i left uh, the high camp at midnight within minutes i was too hot i took my down jacket uh, top off i've got a two-piece so the top came off the gloves came off the hat came off and i climbed all the way through to the summit uh without uh without big gloves just really thick gloves my summit picture i've got no gloves on there wasn't a puff of wind nothing it was it was absolutely perfect there's no other way to explain it you know I, I i have behind me my summit pictures from everest and, and this one's from k2 but these are the gloves that i used um and just that was the only pair of gloves <laughs> i used on the entire climb of k2 including on the summit and actually that's wow. on a satellite phone calling home that's kami sherpa that was with me on, on everest as well as on k2 but that was the only pair of gloves that i used and, and I, we had exactly the same you know situation so i think it's garrett madison i think he's i think he has a deal with the weather gods so <laughs> it might be might be i i think it might be one of garrett's uh, the guides called rob smith an irish guy yeah yeah um, um, he's, he's probably the most understated legend in the high altitude mountaineering world, but he's got two out of two. So, I mean, I think it's him. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Maybe it's Rob. Yeah. So, I mean, good Lord, we, we're, we're skimming through Everest and Lhotse now K2. And, and so next up was to go back to Nepal and see if you can't get uh, Manaslu and Dalagari. So uh, let's let's do Dalagari and then we'll come back and we'll wrap up around Manaslu because that's that's got a lot of a lot of a lot of crevasses and a lot of objective danger we can talk about. <laughs> so talk, talk about Dalagari briefly. How did that just go? before that? I, I know it's not a thousand, but um, it'd be it'd be great just for just a moment to touch on Pobeda if you sure. have time. Yeah, what so tell, most people aren't familiar with it, including myself. So I can't even pronounce. All it. right. So, uh, <laughs> Pobeda is the um, uh, one of of the biggest and coldest mountains in the world. It's in Kyrgyzstan, uh, just shy of 7.5. Okay. Uh, So it's quite big. Um, uh, And it's right on the border. Collective known as the Snow Leopard, the Snow Leopard Award. So it's five. We're in this, um, this setup. So, you know, for the Russians, the Polish, the Czechs, the, these sort of climbers, this um, Snow Leopard Award is big news. Like, they love it. Um, and it's much less known um, in, in the Western world, in America and UK. But many years ago, I went with a friend uh, over a couple of years and we did four of them. 
and we tried Pobeda once and unfortunately I took some rocks to the head and ended up getting heli to the hospital and having some stitches put in but that's another story but um <laughs> yeah I, I I really wanted to go back and I'd never you know didn't have it in the plan but Rob Smith and I kind of hacked the plan whilst we were on K2 that we'd just go straight there and up and back home you know it'd be easy but um yeah so we rob and i rob and i went we spent a week uh waiting for weather and then we set off with six days food and six days gas and it's such a big big mountain it's so hard and it has a massive reputation a little bit like k2's reputation it is not necessarily a good reputation um but we pushed and pushed and made it to high camp on day six uh and then yeah we pushed for the summit but unfortunately time conditions weather to turn back 200 meters below the top but for me like a as a personal project sort of in the middle of some guiding work it was one of my highlights of the year to climb with raw on this on this mountain that means so much to me nice. uh, unfortunately i'm gonna have to go back and um <laughs> have a third bash um yeah i just wanted everyone to mention that because it's such a good peak and an amazing part of the world to climb in in kyrgyzstan yeah that's that's i'm not sure i'll ever get there but uh that's what i hear uh so then so then Dalagari, let's talk about sure. that a little uh well we popped to Dalagiri after Manasalu. Um and there was there was about 30 climbers on Dalagiri this autumn, 30, 40 climbers. So we knew that there was going to be some structure there and you know some people around. But um the, the fixing team and the main core summited on the first of uh October. Uh, and Bex and I, along with Sidi and Lakpa. Uh, we made the kind of alpine style push. So we just went straight from base camp to one, to two, to three. And then on the morning of the third, so two days later, the four of us, there was nobody else pushing that day for the summit. The weather was great, but we pushed from the summit. We left high camp, which is around seven, two. And we made great progress through the night, uh, trail breaking most of the way. And it was just to be the only four of us pushing through for the summit was really cool. Um, and we were feeling great. And we got all the way, pushed all the way through to about seven, nine. Um, and the, the fixing line stopped here because snow fields for about 350 meters between where, where it, uh, it stops being steep um, and it, there's like a couloir up to the plateau. Um, and unfortunately, the way in about a meter meter and a bit of snow so we tried for three hours to to plow away through this um, mm. up to the couloir so it's about 20 degrees about 350 meters uh, and after three hours so the sun came up and, you know the rest of it after three hours we'd gone 60 70 meters oh. so unfortunately we you know we could see this coming, but we had to make the, the tough decision that today wasn't going to be the day. And yeah. um, I wasn't prepared. You know, the, the fact is we could have summited. If we'd kept pushing and pushing, we'd have summited at like 3, 4 p.m. Yeah. Fine. Getting we light. would have summited. But it's like my job is to make good decisions and for myself, my client, for the Sherpas. And in the moment on that day, on that mountain, that was the right decision. So uh, as much as we didn't want to, we um, we made the decision to go down. Yeah, I know. Good. It's always better to you know retreat and live for another day, another try. And I think the yeah. uh, poster child for that on Dalagiri, I always mispronounce it and I always get criticized for calling it Dalagari, Dalagiri. So please yeah. don't make any comments about my pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> but Carlos, this was his twelfth time. 12th time and, and complete with a, a brand new knee and knee replacement. I mean, talk about perseverance. I mean, uh, the guy's an absolute hero. Uh, unfortunately, he left the same day that we arrived. Okay. Um, but I, I saw Tashi and we, he showed me some great photos of, of the two of them dancing at the puja and, um, <laughs> You know, Tashi had nothing, um, nothing but uh, nothing but great things to say about him, and I, I was just really sad yeah, that you know he's been there, he's been there so many times, and, and this year wasn't quite the one. But 
I hope he'll stay motivated to to finish his project. So I totally agree. So one of, uh, you know, this has been an interesting year. I mean, coming off of COVID from last year and again this year and the Himalayan season in the spring was huddled enough of this controversy. Um, but then comes Manislu. And, uh, you know, when we've known about the, the, the multiple summits of Manislu since, you know, the first, I think, Japanese, um, you know, summit uh, decades ago, back in the 50s, right? And um, so, you know, this is not unknown. And it's been discussed here recently in the last three or four years about declaring a zone of summits as opposed to only one summit. And that's not really gotten any traction. But, um, you know, I know that I reached the, uh, the what is now affectionately called the four summit in 2013. And I could look over and I saw a little bump. But Perbatashi, who was a sitar for uh, Russell Bryce that year and who fixed the ropes, uh, I asked him, I said, did we reach the true summit? And he said, yes. And that was always good enough for me, but I always had my doubts. So then we have this drone footage that comes out that is showing it from a vantage point that has never, ever been seen. And it was just yeah. very, very clear that everybody or many people had stopped at that, that, that last little bump before you go through that suicide cornice. And, um, but then Ming Maji, uh, he was very knowledgeable about this whole situation and he was prepared for it. And he went down and took, he dropped down and did a rappel of about 30 meters and then cr uh, crossed over and then went up to the true summit. And one by one, uh, most of his team, if not all of them, if I'm mistaken, made it. Um, but you and Bex, talk us through your experience when you uh, reached the end of the ropes and, and as a professional mountain guide, I mean, how did you, how did you evaluate that risk at that point, risk management? So prior to the summit push, you know, there's some murmuring in camp about summits and four summits and everybody has this dream of going to the true summit on Manus, you know, as you know, from all the previous years, most people, if not everybody stopped to the four summit uh, and I had an uncle Hari who was in the Imagine camp with Ming Maji and uh, I was chatting to him one day and he said, you know, Ming was going to fix to the true summit this year and we're going to we're going to go and have a look and see see what's what basically. And I kind of just said, you know, cool, you know, good for you. Um, you know, if I'm up there at the right time and, you know, everything looks good and I'm happy with Thing, then maybe we'll you know we'll come along too but um i just get up there i've never been up there before i get up and i'll um she's she's not has no interest in breaking records or setting firsts or writing a book um for her these these mountains are about experiences and like i said if you asked her tomorrow what her best experience was she'd probably say makalu there's no right. summit in makalu not, not even a summit day yeah um, but because of all the other aspects that make up an eight thousand meter expedition and so on our summit push i just said to her look i've got a rope we've got a couple of snow bars and some screws i said i just have to have a look you know i can climb and if if it's not crazy or stupid then I'll, I'll certainly have a look but you know we followed up uh through summit day overtook most of the folk because we were using oxygen uh and ended up just behind about six people behind the people at the front as we as we made our way up the very snow crest which in itself is pretty cool it's quite exposed to the four summit and everybody stopped there the, you know everyone in our group stopped there um you know, I'm not going to name drop everybody, but um, you can ask me if you specifically want to know about anybody. Um, we all stopped there, you know, take some photos. And it, it was it was fabulous. It to, to Bex and I, it felt like, you know, it wasn't. We knew that it's clear, like I could stand there and see the true summit. But I had a look around. I went up at like three or four steps further up that, that small summit. I had a look down and I said, well, I don't have the sort of the, the technical equipment I need and the trust in like climbing partner to be able to facilitate leading this pitch to the summit. And she, she didn't care at all. She was totally content with the summit as it was for summit and to her and, and to me and to, to the two Sherps, um, you know, we're, we're not trying to prove anything to anybody or, scream and shout about setting world records and she was like i don't she said i don't need to go any further it makes no difference to her so 
we just decided it was a pretty simple decision that is a four summit and if anyone asks then we went to the four summit it doesn't really matter uh to us but i think if 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 one was um claiming 14 8000s or a, a true summit then you have to go to the summit like I don't see why it's such a big query or, uh, you know, why it's generated so much interest. Like, it seems pretty simple. Like, you either cross the line of a marathon or you stop at 26 miles. You know, you don't do the point two. You know, you just don't. We're basically, like, as I, I was chatting to my uh, friend, David Gottler, who you might know, and uh, I came up with this phrase that kind of said, uh, what did I say to him? I said, it feels like we're drowning in a sea of social media lies. Um, and I don't think people intentionally are lying or necessarily trying to deceive others. But, you know, you say, oh, I summited Manasalu. And then you know, people just aren't necessarily being too, too honest or transparent. Um, I just think fundamentally, like, it's clear that you can get through summit. Mingbaji proved that without too much difficulty. His clients followed along which are not seasoned alpinists or climbers, but, you know, they're competent and they followed and they got to the true summit, which now uh, means that the Himalayan database and um, any climbers following don't really have an excuse. Like, they just have to yeah. be honest. If they go to the four summit with oxygen, with Sherpas, it's totally it. cool. Yeah, fine. Totally cool. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. But... You know, and it's a shame that everyone has to um, blame things these days. You know, I, one of the reasons I enjoyed climbing with Beck so much this year was because there was no fanfare. Like, she does have Instagram, but I think she posted twice in a year. You know, it was just a case of us trying to be safe and having a really good time. And it was so refreshing not to be, like, screaming and shouting about what you have or haven't done and whether you're using O's or not, like, I'm all for these healthy debates and I fully respect, you know, I had a really good chat with David about using O's because obviously he doesn't and, uh, you know, his ethics are pretty black and white and it's totally cool. That's fine. We'd still climb, still climb together. Yeah. 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 I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the marathon analogy that, you know, you didn't, you didn't run the whole marathon if you didn't do the point too. Um, you know, yeah. yeah. And, but, but, I think the issue is that people have been claiming the summit um, when they they didn't make it. Um, and I think in some cases, and, and I will put myself in that boat, it was an honest mistake because, I mean, per Batashi, 21 summits of Everest, you know, if this guy tells you that's, that's accumulated snow, not rock, I, I'm going to believe him. Now, maybe shame on me. Maybe I was naive. And, and I will accept those as criticisms. Um, but once now I know, I went back and changed um, on my personal website to say I reached a four summit. And you know what? Just like Bex, I'm happy. I had a great yeah. climb on K2 or on, on Manislu. And it was there that Phil Crampton planted the seed in my head to go to K2, which I did the next year. So for me, you know, in, yeah. from, from my personal framing, Manislu was about as good as it gets. The difficulty I'd have personally is if I if I continue to complete the fourteen, and I and I get to say the last one, I will know in myself that I haven't been to the true summit of Manaslu. Yeah, sure, I could write a book about the fourteen and and effectively lie about it, and no one will ever pull me up or question me or or whatever, probably. Um, but in myself, I know I haven't been to the true summit, so. It just depends how you live with yourself, I suppose. Totally, totally agree. Totally agree. All right, my friend. This is October 19th, 2021. It's currently 10.01 p.m. in Kathmandu at the Hotel Radisson. <laughs> and you're leaving for Amadablam when? A couple of days? Uh, so my client, Nick, uh, is arriving day in Kathmandu. And then we'll hopefully, because it's raining here at the moment. No. Um, yeah. Hopefully we'll fly, excuse me, fly into Lukla on the 22nd and make our way up to Amsterdam. Yeah, you just had some holiday over in Pokhara, but then your flight got what, delayed or canceled, so you had to take the the uh, yeah. <laughs> the infamous bus ride back. <laughs> uh, 
I, I just had a three days there doing some paragliding and then uh, was going to come back today on uh, yesterday on the 18th to have a couple of days getting things sorted for Nick. Uh, but yeah, all flights were cancelled. So I had, it was nine hours last night. Uh, got in at just after midnight. That's okay. Well, like life. I said earlier, you're living living this 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 enviable, glamorous life of a professional <laughs> mountain guide. <laughs> oh, it's rock and roll! I tell you, it's nine hours roll. in a bus, great. Yeah. yeah, hopefully you'll get that. Are you going to take fixed wing in the Lukla or helicopter? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's Nick's first time in the Himalayas, and I want to give him the full the full Himalayan experience. So we're going fixed wing into Lukla, trekking in. Um, just just the normal, usual, full full expedition experience. Yeah, I'm so jealous. It was on the summit of uh, of uh, Amada Blom, and I think it was 1998, with David Hiddleston, um, the late David Hiddleston of, um, of uh, Adventure Consultants, that we were coming yeah. down, and he looked at me and he goes, okay, mate, I guess you're ready for Everest. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was another one of yeah, those things that was planted at the you know right time and you know set in set in motion my future so i wish you best of luck on amada blanc fantastic climb hopefully it won't be too thanks. crowded so good weather yeah thanks so much it'd be interesting to see this year uh, how many people uh are on ama i think it'll be reasonably busy and quite popular but uh talking to his worry earlier he thinks that you know, with the with the countries just still coming out of uh, what's been a tough couple of years, that he thinks that it'll still be reasonably quiet this year, and maybe maybe from twenty twenty two things will start to shape up. Recognized a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, I uh, understand that uh, most of the Kumbu has been uh, vaccinated. Most of the you know the full time residents have all received vaccinations. So hopefully okay. it'll, it'll be safe. I know that uh, Kami and his wife and family have all been, they live in Pengboche. So I know they've, yeah. been, they've been vaccinated. All right. Anything exactly. you want to leave us with? Any parting wisdom from a professional mountain guide living <laughs> in luxury? <laughs> I don't know about the last bit, but um, no, no, that, that was great. Ple- pleasure to chat, Alan, as always. And um, yeah, let's hopefully reach the true summit of uh, Amad de Blum. <laughs> <laughs> Inshallah. <laughs> All Inshallah. right. Take care. All right, everybody. All Take right. care.